clear the deck a little bit here. Transfiguration Sunday. Um, I have a problem. I'm the guy who always says Yahweh isn't showy or bombastic. No big displays. So I have to ask, honestly, why the big spectacle? And who is this for? Let's back up one verse before today's reading. Probably should have asked for it to be added, but verse 1 says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Mark strategically sets up this scene with that word. It's not just random. Mark tells us that this is the beginning of Jesus' teaching about his date with death. Matthew says, from that time, he starts speaking about what he must do. And the Gospels reflect that he now begins to focus on the disciples and their understanding more than his public teaching. So what about this event makes it a turning point? I have lots of questions today. Verse 2 says, six days later, he took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the high mountain by themselves. My next question is, could these three be some of those standing here who won't taste death before they see the kingdom? We should also be alert, because this is one of the three times that are identified where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and sequesters them. Anybody got the other two off the top of their head? Gethsemane and the raising of Jairus' daughter. So, the setup verse, the change in Jesus' emphasis, and the separating off of Peter, James, and John should be sending us signals. We aren't told which mountain they're on, oddly enough. For me, I guess it's Hermon. First, because it's the tallest peak. Um, And it also tells us, just before this, that they have been in Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount Hermon, on the southwest side in Israel. Um, It's also the iconic mountain that David always referred to as the celestial dwelling. Uh, Psalm 133 says, The dew of Hermon pours down on the mountains of Zion. And interestingly enough, this is just Jeff thinking, the dew of Hermon is also the very first tributary for the River Jordan. They were told Jesus was transformed before them on the mountain. The Greek word metamorphothane, he morphed in front of them. He began to glow pure white. Along with this, Moses and Elijah arrive, and they are talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us that they are discussing Jesus' future and his death. So who is this mountain meeting for? I want to put before you that, firstly, it's for Jesus. It is a father-orchestrated clarification and encouragement for Jesus. This This is very important in how we understand Jesus. And it's not just a seminary subject, Winfield. (laughs) 
In the 5th century, following the early church councils where they established that Jesus was both God and man, the next discussion came, uh, how much man and how much God? There was a group called the Monophysites, and they believed that Jesus was only human in his birth, life, and death, but he was 100% God. Uh, In today's language, that would be said, uh, they believed he was only identifying as human. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. That's what I wanted right there. The groan. But he isn't just God passing through, acting like he's a human. He is human. Even with all the endowments of the Holy Spirit and a never-ending connection with his Father. This meeting is part of Jesus' progressive obedience and his father's watch care over his incarnated son. So why Moses and Elijah? These are the original mountain men. They each had a solo engagement with Yahweh on mountains, 1,500 years and 900 years, respectively, before. They also happened to be the two men for whom God handled funeral arrangements personally. And this is more than just a comforting uh, cultural cameo by the uh, icons of Israel. Moses has had a a face-to-face with Yahweh on Sinai, and God calls him friend. Moses experienced this kind of transfiguration, the glowing white transfer of glory. When we say Moses and Elijah, most of us have been trained to think law and prophets. But Moses never casts himself as a lawgiver, and neither does God. In Deuteronomy, Moses calls himself a prophet, and so does God. He promises that he will give Israel a prophet like Moses, And he implies that there will be a continuing supply of them right up until the time Messiah comes. Let me also add that the Hebrew word that is translated commandments is actually the word word. Right now I'm thinking, how different would the world be if the word commandment had been rendered word. So the Septuagint places this by using the word commandment in a legal context. But the semantic range of all of the words surrounding it, almost all of them, uh, is didactic. It's teaching. If you aren't trying to impose a legal understanding or a legal setting for it, you wouldn't come up with that. And so for me, this is my statement for the morning, Moses is a prophetic teacher, not a law-giving liberator. And I can give you scholars, this is not original to me, if you've never heard it before. So if Moses is the original archetype prophet, what is happening in this visitation with Moses and Elijah is the beginning of the prophetic line 
And the end of the pre-Messianic prophetic succession is here present with Jesus. There's a huge message in that. And if you're thinking that John the baptizer was actually the end of the line, Jesus called him Elijah and attributed the spirit of Elijah to him. Notice that the spiritual visitors don't engage the disciples at all. They are only talking to Jesus. But in the middle of it, Peter has to do his input. He said, I know, I know. We should build tabernacles, temporary shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Uh, again, no response from the visitors or Jesus to this idea. But maybe Peter's uh, out-of-the-blue comment wouldn't seem so random if we lay this next to it. Do you remember that some of the last words that Moses said to Israel was to proscribe every seven years you all need to get together and put up tabernacles, temporary shelters, and hear the entire reading of the word of God, the teachings of Moses, the Torah, read aloud. So I'm hearing Peter in the presence of Moses going, what would be better than hearing the Torah recited by the original deliverer, the original prophet that gave them? So I think that's a pretty reasonable thing for a Jewish boy to come up with in a moment like that, terrified as they were. So, uh, by the way, that statement by Moses was the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. So, the other thing is that Moses has been described as having this glow, and he's just seen Jesus light up. So, naturally, he's associating what's going on right now with Sinai, not with what's going on right here. Wrong time, wrong place. Thank you, Peter. But Mark breaks in into the narrative and comments that Peter doesn't understand what's actually going on. But we have to remember that Mark's gospel was written decades later after discussion and lots of, you know, um, careful thought about the things that they'd seen. So what Mark comments is to set up what's coming next, to help us understand. It says, immediately a cloud forms over them, and the voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That's the same word that came in the Jordan with John, the last Elijah. Immediately the cloud and the prophets disappear, and only Jesus is left. So this is not about the great men who came. It's 100% about Jesus, his place in the universe, and it's about his walk to the throne. This is an essential turning point in that progression. So the Jordan baptism is the acclamation, and here on Mount Hermon comes the confirmation. Mount Sion, Mount Sinai, and Jordan are being capped with the glory of Mount Hermon. Um, it occurs to me to, to lay a little parallel for us here. Um, it, it's 
You could do it with David's life, but it's probably easier for us to understand. We've seen King Charles come to the throne. Think about how his progression to the throne worked. He was destined to be king at his birth. He's confirmed as a boy. And at age 20, he is designated the Prince of Wales. And in that moment, he became the king-designate. He was going to be king This is the moment where the switch is flipped, if you will. In the transfiguration, God pronounces that Jesus is his cherished son, and he is to be deferred to. This is the prince's coronation. And it's in the hearing of the arch disciples, Peter, James, and John. And could this moment be the one that Jesus is referring to in verse 1? Could this be the kingdom of God coming with power upon Jesus by the word of the Father? The transfiguration is the point where all of this is confirmed. And our Old Testament reading is on point. Elijah goes up to Mount Horeb to escape. And the Lord comes and asks him, what are you doing here? Elijah takes the opportunity to um, release his uh, prepared statement. Like he's not even talking to God. He's just saying what he's been thinking. You know, I'm... I'm so alone, and everyone wants me dead. And I'm sure the Lord's just going, okay. (laughs) At any rate, then comes the Lord's compassionate moment. He says, go out to the front of the cave, and I will pass by. Here God says, I will pass by, and I will proclaim my name in your presence. Now, if you read the scripture, there's no name given, right? So what he's saying is, I will express my nature to you. So Elijah puts his camel's hair tallis over his face, his cover, his tent, um, his outer garment. There are a lot of words that are used for tallis that we just don't get. It's the object that has the tassels at the corners. And when Hebrew men would go to prayer, Especially in a public place, these are referenced in the New Testament, you flip this over your face and it's called going into your prayer closet. You could do it out on the street and that's referred to, well, okay, I'm getting off here. Stick with it. So he covers his face with his talus, the camel's hair talus that John the Baptist was said to have also worn by the Jordan. That's another day. Um... And what happens? The wind comes, but God is not in the wind. The earthquake comes, but God is not in the earthquake. And the fire comes, and he's not in that either. Then a gentle whisper. I have to throw in a little interpretive cipher here for you, okay? This applies to a number of places in the book, including the very end. So when the winds are disturbed, what's going on? The powers and the authorities of the air are being messed with. When earthquakes come, what is that? That's the darkness and death, which were attributed to underneath the earth. And the fire is where? It's on the surface of the earth. It's where men and women exist. So it's a picture of the shaking of all of those things. Got it? 
If I'm wrong, fix me later. So Yahweh saying that he was not in these destructive actions is to say it's not by his hand. I am not doing this. So I believe that Elijah is being told, and so are we, that the shaking in the heavens and the earth and the fire are the natural reaction of the broken world to the coming of the Lord. And I think of that when I consider Revelation. Um, God is not raining down judgments on the earth. It's the snake-like recoil of the earth to the coming of holiness into the fallen Babylon world. Okay. So what does Elijah do when he comes down from the mountain? He prepares the way for the restoration by anointing and naming new leaders who will lead the people back to their Mosaic promise, the promise to God that they made. Back on Mount Hermon real quickly. As they descend from Hermon, Jesus and the three, he tells them not to verbally process what they've just seen with anyone else until the rest of this narrative has been lived. He knew that if they did, he'd have a lot more things to undo. So, informed by the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, listen again to the, Old, or the New Testament reading from Peter. Listen to how he captures what he saw with it in the rearview mirror. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made it known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. The transfiguration is a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. So from this point, just as Moses came down from Sinai to establish a covenant with words, and Elijah came down from Horeb to restore the kingdom, so it is with Jesus after the transfiguration. He descends from the high mountain to enact a new covenant that will restore all things in the heaven and the earth and below the earth, ending death forever. This turning point in Jesus' life and ministry is the anchor point because the confirmed and rising king is now in the land. Revelation tells tells us clearly that when God is present in the fallen Babylon world, the The heavens shake and roar, the earth quakes, and death rears up. So closing, Peter, James, and John were passively present in this Mount Hermon coronation, but they were especially invited by Jesus 
the soon-to-be arch-disciples received something in this encounter, and they were transformed by Jesus' transfiguration. These three in particular became the prophetic teachers in the New Covenant. They became the this-is-that voices in the first-generation church. They began to explain the prophets of old and dismantle the misconceptions about the Messiah, the kingship of Jesus, and explained the posture of the Father toward the world so that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could be received rightly. The seeds of Mount Hermon grew roots in the early church, and we are the fruit of that vine. So the transfiguration was really mostly for us. As King David saw, from the dome of Mount Hermon, the dew pours down on the mountains of Zion. Amen.